questions to the Prime Minister. Yeah. Michelle Donnellan. Question one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The House will be aware of the dreadful accident that occurred at Didcot Power Station yesterday afternoon in which one died and three are missing. I know the whole House will join me in sending our condolences to the family and friends of the victim and our best wishes to those who are still missing or were injured. I also want to pay tribute to the quick and incredibly brave actions of our emergency services who dealt with the incident with typical professionalism. The Health and Safety Executive will carry out a full investigation to find out what led to this tragedy. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Michelle Donnellan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'd just like to associate myself and the people of Wiltshire with the Prime Minister's sentiments on today's occurrence in Ditcott. Wiltshire has successfully integrated a number of Syrian refugees already, including babies and children that otherwise might have frozen or starved to death in the camps. However, there has been a serious delay by the Home Office, despite Wiltshire's Council's claims to have tried to have introduced more into the area. I would like the Prime Minister to tell us what more can he do on this matter? Can he look into it? And can he also outline what can we do to fulfil our moral duty to these desperate people? Well, first of all, let me pay tribute to Wiltshire Council and to the many councils up and down our country who have done a magnificent job in integrating and taking in um, Syrian refugees and their families, finding them homes, finding them schools, and I hope in time finding them jobs too. If you look at uh, what has happened across Europe in terms of the relocation and resettlement programme, actually Britain has done far better than any other country in terms of uh, this sort of resettlement programme. We said a thousand by Christmas. We've delivered a thousand by Christmas. My honourable friend asked what more we can do. Well, first of all, I will make sure that she can meet with the Home Office to talk about how we can make sure uh, this uh, this system works well. We'll continue to invest in the Syrian refugee camps, not least with the $11 billion that we raised at the landmark uh, London conference, and we'll continue to do what we can to deliver the 20,000 Syrian refugees that we said we'd take into our country. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I want to echo the Prime Minister's tribute to all of the emergency services in dealing with the major incident in Didcot. Our thoughts are with the families of the person who died and those with the families of those who are missing or injured. We rely on our emergency services and we should make sure they are always there for all of us. The NHS staff survey published yesterday shows that nine out of ten junior doctors already work extra hours beyond their normal contract. The survey also showed falling morale amongst this vital group of staff. What does the Prime Minister think the Health Secretary's veto of a deal and the imposition of a contract will do to their morale? Well, first of all, the Health Secretary did not veto a deal. What we've had... What we've had is, for four years, discussions about how important it is to have an NHS that works on a more seven-day basis. But let me pay tribute to the fact that so many in the NHS work so hard already at the weekends. But what matters is making sure we can have a genuine seven-day NHS. And what I'd say to junior doctors is that no junior doctor working legal hours will receive a pay cut. This contract will not impose longer hours. In fact, it has 
tougher safeguards to make sure it reduces the hours that are worked. We're not seeking to save money from the new contract, and nights and Saturday evenings and Sundays continue to attract unsocial hours payments. This is a good deal from a government that is putting £10 billion more into our NHS. Mr Speaker, this dispute with the junior doctors has been on the basis of misrepresented research about weekend mortality. I'll read the Prime Minister what the researchers themselves say, and I quote, It is not possible to ascertain the extent to which these excess deaths may be preventable. To assume they are avoidable would be rash and misleading. So is the Prime Minister and his Health Secretary being rash and misleading with these figures? Yes. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me agree with the right honourable gentleman about something, which is this dispute has been plagued by scaremongering and inaccurate statistics. The British, the, the British Medical Association, in their first intervention, said that this was a 30% pay cut. That was completely untrue. In fact, it was so untrue that they had to take their pay calculator off their website and they never put it back up again. Now let me answer very directly the question about excess deaths. The 6,000 figure for excess deaths was based on a question asked by the Health Secretary to Sir Bruce Keogh, the, me- the, the, the Medical Director of the NHS. Now we've had time to go into these figures in more detail. I can tell the House this that the Health Secretary was indeed guilty. He was guilty of an understatement. The true figures for excess deaths at the weekend are 11,000, not 6,000. So perhaps the Right Honourable Gentleman will now withdraw his totally totally unjustified attack on the Health Secretary. Will he withdraw it now he knows the figures? Mr Speaker, it's just worth reflecting for one moment. There is no dispute with the junior doctors in Scotland or in Wales because their governments have had the sense to reach an agreement with the junior doctors. He must also be aware that the vast majority of the public of England are on the side of the junior doctors, not the Secretary of State. But the situation actually gets worse, Mr Speaker. A Freedom of Information request by the BBC today reveals that when asked for the source of the Health Secretary's statistics, civil servants in the Department of Health decided to, and I quote, offer up the most bland statement possible that would neither confirm nor contradict the Health Secretary's statement. Isn't it time that the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary actually apologise for what they've done and correct these statements and, indeed, while they're about it, reach an honourable settlement with the junior doctors? I think that the best can be said there is he wrote that question before he heard my answer. Possible description of how the figure for 6,000 excess deaths was arrived at, and now the true figure being 11,000. But I note that there's absolutely no withdrawal of his accusation against the Health Secretary, even after he gets those figures. Now, he says there's no dispute in Scotland and Wales with the junior doctors. Well, the reason for that is in Scotland and Wales, they are not trying to create more of a seven day NHS. Now, that seven day NHS 
was not only in our manifesto, because I want to make sure that hard-working people can access health services at an equal rate right through the week, because you don't just get ill uh, in the weekdays, but also if he reads his own party's report into their election defeat, they admit that the concept of a seven-day NHS was a very popular concept, and it is. So what I would say to him is you can see in England we are putting £10 billion more into the NHS, we've got 10,000 more doctors, we've got 10,000 more nurses, we're treating more patients, we now have a settlement of the GP contract, we have a settlement now of the junior doctors contract, we are building a strong NHS for patients, and that's what this is about. Mr Speaker, we all... We all want a strong and successful NHS. You don't achieve that by provoking industrial action, misrepresenting research, or failing to get a grip on the cost of agency staff in the NHS, which now amounts to £4 billion. Indeed, in the Prime Minister's own local NHS trust, it's overspent on staffing costs by £11 million this year, yet has managed to spend £30 million on agency staff. Will the chair of the Oxford anti-austerity campaign be writing another letter to himself, asking his local, uh, asking on behalf of his constituents for the health secretary to intervene and support his local NHS? I'm very proud of the NHS in Oxfordshire and everyone who works in it. And having met recently with the head of the Oxford Radcliffe Trust, I know that he supports this move towards more seven-day services. That's absolutely vital. I'll ask my mother. Oh, I think I know what my mother would say. I think she'd look across the dispatch box and she'd say, put on a proper suit, do up your tie and sing the national anthem. would have said, stand up for the principle of a health service free at the point of use for everybody. Because that's what she dedicated her life to, as did many of her generation. Mr Speaker, we are three quarters of the way passed into this financial year. The NHS deficit is already £2.26 billion. 53% of NHS trust finance directors say the quality of care in their local area has worsened in this year. What will the deficit be by the end of next month? We will get deficits down because we're clamping down on the staffing agencies, 
on expensive management consultants and introducing better public procurement. But the Honourable General General has to recognise this. We said that we would back the Simon Stevens plan, which means at least eight billion more into the NHS, although we put ten billion more into the NHS at the last election and subsequently, Labour have refused to back that extra money. And so when you look at the NHS today, and my mother is equally proud of the NHS as I am, and I know she would be pleased to know 1.9 million more people going to A&E, 1.6 million more operations, 10,700 more doctors, 11,800 more nurses. And I have to say, I think if Nye Bevan was here today, he'd want a seven-day NHS, because he knew the NHS was for patients up and down our country. Naibu Van would be turning in his grave if he could hear the Prime Minister's attitude towards the NHS. He was a man with vision. He was a man with vision who wanted a health service for the good of all. I tell you, Mr Speaker, our health service is run by brilliant people, brilliant doctors, brilliant nurses, brilliant staff. But I've got a question for the Prime Minister from one of those brilliant doctors. His name is Ashraf. And he sent me a question saying this, as a doctor, I know full well the stresses on the NHS and the shortcomings. We already have a seven-day emergency services. How does increasing elective work improve safety at the weekend? If a truly seven-day NHS is wanted, we need more nurses, more admin staff, more porters, radiographers, physios, all the other vital workers. Will the Prime Minister now, today, commit to publishing the Department of Health's analysis of the real cost of introducing a seven-day NHS, and will he be prepared to pay for it rather than picking a fight with the junior doctors who want to deliver it? What I think is, is not clear is whether or not Labour support a seven-day NHS or not. Now, we do support a seven-day NHS, and that is why we're putting in the £10 billion. That's why we're putting in 10,000 more doctors, putting in 11,000 more nurses. And crucially, yes, that is why we are looking at the contracts in the NHS to make sure it can work on a more seven-day basis. Now, the truth is this. You can go to hospitals today in our country, like the Salford Royal in the northwest of England, where they're already operating on a seven-day basis within the existing budgets. Now, this is good because they're using all their equipment on a seven-day basis. They're carrying out consultations seven days of the week. They carry out some operations seven days a week. That actually is good for the hospital, good for the staff working in it, and above all, it's good for patients. We don't just get ill on Monday to Friday. I want a world-class NHS. We are funding a world-class NHS. We've got world-class people working in our NHS, and together we're going to build that seven-day NHS. Chris Davis. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. With such a large number of schools in Brecon and Radnorshire facing the prospect of closure, what can my right honourable friend to do, do to encourage the Welsh Assembly to convert state schools into free schools and academies, in order that my constituents can benefit from the improvements to education that English pupils are seeing, and hopefully save these excellent schools from closure? Yeah. 
Well, obviously, the issue of education is devolved in Wales. It's a responsibility for the Welsh Assembly Government. But I would urge them to focus that a good education depends not only on the finance, which is there because of the way the Barnet formula works and because of the decisions we've taken about funding NHS in England. I would say it also requires high standards and the publication of league tables so people can see how their children are doing. And crucially, it requires these structural reforms free schools, academies, introducing some diversity, some some competition, and getting organisations that are passionate about education to provide state education. We want all the best organisations in there providing the best education for our children. Angus Robertson. May I begin by associating the Scottish National Party with the comments of the Prime Minister and the leader of the Labour Party in relation to the tragedy in Didcot? Our thoughts are with all of those who have been affected. Will the Prime Minister congratulate the Scottish Government and his own colleagues who secured a deal on financial arrangements for the next phase of Scottish devolution? The Treasury position initially endangered £7 billion of public funding in Scotland at the beginning of this week. That was reduced to £3 billion. Yesterday morning it was £2.5 billion. What changed the mind of the Treasury and helped them agree to a deal that will make Scotland no worse off? Well, let me uh, agree with the right hon. Gentleman. This is an excellent deal. It is an excellent deal for Scotland, but it's also an excellent deal for the United Kingdom. For those of us who want to keep the United Kingdom together, what we've just demonstrated is that you can have full-on devolution with a powerhouse parliament, with a fair fiscal settlement inside the United Kingdom. And I think that is something to be celebrated. Now we're going to move to the situation where the Scottish Government and the Scottish Parliament will have to start talking about policies and decisions rather than processes. But I'm happy that the negotiations went as they did. I'm happy we have a good outcome, and I'm happy that Lord Smith, who is responsible for so much of this work, put out a statement saying this delivers Smith and the principles in full. So no more grievance, no more fussing about process, no more arguments about the arrangements. Now is time to get on and govern. And we're indebted to Scotland's finance uh, secretary, John Sir Nicola Sturgeon, for securing a no-detriment deal uh, for Scotland. The, the Prime Minister is right that all parties will have to lay out their plans in advance of the May election. So, could you answer this question? Is it actually true that in this time of austerity, his party, the Conservative Party, is planning tax cuts for higher earners in Scotland? Well, it'll be Ruth Davidson, who is the only proper opposition figure in Scotland, who'll be setting out the plans. If you're worried in Scotland about having a bit of a one-party state and a lack of accountability, if you think that the Labour Party in Scotland's lost its way, there is only one choice, and that is Ruth. But I'll say this. I think there are opportunities to cut taxes. There are opportunities to sharpen incentives. There are opportunities to attract businesses and people into Scotland. And I'm sure that Ruth will be making those arguments. And as she does, she, whatever she decides, she will have my full and unequivocal support. Thank you, Mr Speaker. A recent survey undertaken by Blaby District Council showed that 96% of the 1,100 residents surveyed were satisfied with my council services. Would my right honourable friend join me 
in paying tribute to the Leader of the Council, Conservative Leader Terry Richardson, his councillor colleagues and all the officers in Blaby District Council, who, whilst making savings that are necessary, are continuing to deliver a first-class service to the residents of South Leicestershire. I'm happy to join my honourable friend in, in doing that, but he does make, I think, an important point, which is, yes, we had to make difficult spending decisions, not least over the last five years, but satisfaction with local government services actually went up. And I think this proves a larger point, which is you can reduce spending levels, find efficiencies, and provide better services at the same time. Great! Yeah. Indeed, Mr Speaker. My constituent, uh, Frank Wason, is on long-term uh, sick leave due to severe depression, but he is no longer entitled to sick pay, was turned down for ESA and cannot claim GSA due to his job being kept open for him. Mr Wason cannot leave his highly skilled job as a chef uh, due to the threat of punitive sanctions, leaving him with no income. Will the Prime Minister uh, look at Mr Wason's case specifically, but also the wider issue of people with mental health issues who are unable to work, being expected to live on fresh air. I'm very happy to look at the individual case because the way our benefit system should work is clear that if you are unable to work but with help could work, you should go on to employment and support allowance on the work-related activity group and get that help. If you're unable to work, you go on to the support group, you get a higher amount of money. It's not means-tested, it's not time-limited. For people who have mental health issues and difficulties, you've also got the new personal independence payment system, which can address some of those. So quite rightly, for a generous and compassionate country, we have a benefit system that supports those who cannot work, while making sure that those who can work are, are encouraged to do so. He's through. Thank you, Mr Speaker. It's fantastic news that unemployment in my constituency has fallen by 62 per cent since 2010. However, I'm committed to helping even more residents back into work as we work towards our target of full employment. That is why on March the 18th I'll be holding a community and jobs fair, bringing together employers and the voluntary sector for residents to find out the many ways they can get uh, suitable employment and support from charities. I'd like to invite the Prime Minister to come along to this event and see for himself the resourcefulness of the residents of Erie Washington House. Let me thank my honourable friend, and I'm sure I'll be doing quite a lot of touring the country in the weeks to come, and perhaps uh, a visit to Erewash would be very worthwhile. I've visited her constituency before. Look, we have now a much lower unemployment rate. When you look across Europe, our rate, just above 5%, is one of the lowest in Europe. But even at that rate, there's still a lot more to do to match the jobs that are being created to the people that want to work, and jobs fairs and apprenticeships and training programmes are absolutely essential so that we deliver on what we promised, which is full employment. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister likes to go on about the importance of returning sovereignty to this House. Can I remind the Prime Minister that on 7 January we debated the issue of women's state pension and the fact that women are being discriminated by the pace of state pension increase. The House divided that day 158 votes to zero and asked the Government to mitigate the effects of this. Why has the Government not respected the sovereignty of the vote of this Parliament? 
Well, well, first of all, I'd argue very strongly we are not discriminating against women. What we're making sure is there is an equal age of retirement, and that's right. And to women who have been discriminated against in the pension system in the past, the single-tier pension means many more will be retiring with a full pension. And as they do so, they have the triple lock of knowing pensions will always go up by wages, prices, or 2.5%, whichever is the highest. That's why pensioner poverty is at a record low, and that's why pensioners know they can live in security and dignity in our country. Greg McKinley. Speaker, uh, South Thanet legs behind much of the South East across very many indices. I've launched a new body locally, the Ramsgate Regeneration Alliance, that brings together businesses and community groups. Can I invite my right honourable friend and the Coastal Communities Minister to this gem on our doorstep to see for themselves what it could and indeed should be? Well, I'm, I'm very happy to put Ramsgate on my uh, tour list for the coming uh, months. And uh, we all remember the historic battle that he fought uh, in that uh, constituency. Look, we have set up the Coastal Communities Fund, and we have a dedicated minister in the government to try to help coastal communities. And I will make sure that officials from his department meet with this new alliance and make sure they look at the Ramsgate Coastal Community Team and what they can do to help. For two years, my constituents and I campaigned against the development of a luxury skyscraper. The local councillors listened and rejected the plans. But then the Conservative Minister for Local Government called in the decision and overturned the wishes of the community, showing utter disrespect for local democracy. The Prime Minister preaches localism, but when he finally admits that his government only believes in the devolution of blame for cuts, not the devolution of actual power for local communities. We have a long-standing system for local planning, but also being able to call in decisions, and that operated all the time under the last Labour government. If anything, our local planning system is actually putting more power in the hands of local people, because once they've completed their local plan, it's then much easier to say yes to developments that are within that plan and no to developments that are outside it. You Merriman! Last Friday, I made separate visits to three families, all of whom have a child suffering from acute mental health difficulties, which the families felt had not been adequately assessed at the early stages by CAMS. Colleagues from across the chamber will be all too familiar with such visits. I welcome the Prime Minister's recent commitment to reform mental health provision for young people. Can I ask him to consider reviewing the provisional provision of initial stage treatment and ask that he continues to be the champion for these vulnerable and brave children. Well, let me thank my honourable friend for his question. He's right that children and young people's mental health is a priority for this government. I think we can all agree across this House this is not an area that has had adequate attention or adequate investment for many years. I would highlight particularly the problems of psychosis, sometimes uh, caused uh, by, by drug use. I'd also raise the huge problem of eating disorders, where we see a rapid increase in the number of people suffering. Uh, we have gone a long way in increasing the number of talking therapies. Something like 740,000 more people are accessing those therapies when this government came to office, but we recognise there's more to be done, and that's why we're investing $1.4 billion in system-wide transformation across children and adolescents' mental health. Richard Arkless. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week, Scottish Power refused to attend 
an evidence session with the cashback APPG, where crucial new evidence was uncovered. As a former consumer litigator, I am utterly convinced that over 2,000 of my constituents and over half a million people in the UK are owed cashbacks from Scottish Power. Given this is a scandal of potentially huge proportions, will the Prime Minister agree to meet with me in the cross-party APPG to discuss how we can ensure that these ordinary, hard-working people receive the cashbacks they were promised from Scottish Power? No, and I'm, I'm glad the Honourable Gentleman has raised this, because it's been raised on previous occasions by the Honourable Member for my friend, the Member for Aberconwy, and I know the cross-party group has done some very useful work. My understanding is, of course, that any alleged wrongdoing should be fully investigated. Ofgem can impose fines if they find companies have breached their licence, and I'm very happy to arrange for a meeting between him and other members of the all-party group with the relevant ministers in the Department of Energy and Climate Change so we can try and get this fixed. Michael Ellis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that with the NATO summit in Warsaw pending, with the threat of expansionism from Putin's Russia and the national security threat from Daesh, we are right in this party, in this government, to support 2% of our GDP towards defence. And isn't he shocked at the failure of the party opposite to do likewise? I think my honourable friend makes an important point, which is we do face an insecure and unstable world, particularly with what Putin has done in the Ukraine, particularly with what we see in Syria. And that's why I think 2% spending on defence and making sure we renew our nuclear deterrent is the right answer. To be fair to the Labour Party, they have got an answer. They're not going to spend 2%. They're not going to renew our Trident submarines, but they've come up with a really brilliant answer. They are bringing back, as their spokesman and spin doctor, Damien McBride. That is, six months after saying, and this is the leader of the opposition, we can win in 2020, but only if we spend the next five years building this movement and putting forward a vision for the new kind of politics, honest, kinder and more caring. Six months on, Damien McBride is back. That says it all. are calling for more. There will be more. Imran Hussein. Thank you, you, Mr Speaker. Last week I visited Palestine along with several of my honourable friends where we visited the home of Nora and her family who have lived in the old city of East Jerusalem since 1953. However, Israeli settlers are now trying to force Nora from her home of over 60 years, and there are many other cases. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that illegal settlements and constructions are a major roadblock that hinder peaceful negotiations? And what is this government doing to help prevent the infringement of, uh, into Palestinian lives and land? 
Let me say, I think the question the honourable gentleman raises is incredibly important. I am well known as being a strong friend of Israel, but I have to say, the first time I visited Jerusalem and had a proper tour around that wonderful city and saw what has happened with the effective encirclement of East Jerusalem, occupied East Jerusalem, it is genuinely shocking. And so, what this government has consistently done and gone on doing is saying, yes, we are supporters of Israel, but we do not support uh, illegal settlements. We do not support what is happening in East Jerusalem, and it's very important that this capital city is maintained in the way it was in the past. First. Thank you, Mr Speaker. One of my constituents, Alex Bagnall, is fighting to have his son brought back to the UK after he was taken to Poland by the mother illegally as per the Hague Treaty. Will the Prime Minister outline what interventions the Government can make to EU and Polish authorities with regards to the Hague Convention in order to help British families with the safe return of their abducted children to offer hope to devastated families like my constituents, the Bagnalls? Well, my honourable friend is absolutely right to to raise a case like this, and sadly there are far too many of them in our country. Uh, The the straight answer is that the return decision is, of course, for the Polish court, and governments can't interfere in the decisions or processes of another country's justice system. But we do have the International Child Abduction and Contact Unit at the Ministry of Justice. They've been in constant touch with Mr Bagnall. They're processing his paperwork. They're chasing their counterparts in Poland for information. And I will make sure the Foreign Secretary is aware of this case and does everything he can to help her and help her constituent. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, oil and gas has contributed over £300 billion to Treasury coffers. Uh, the Scottish Government, Trades Unions and Oil and Gas UK are calling for reductions to the headline rate of tax to support the industry in its hour of need. Yet instead of the so-called broad shoulders of the UK, what we see are the slopey shoulders of the Prime Minister repeatedly dodging his responsibilities. Will he commit to reduce the tax level on oil and gas and support this vital industry? What I would say to the Honourable Gentleman is, first of all, in the budget last year, we reduced the burden of tax on oil and gas, something we were able to do because of the broad shoulders of the UK. And now let us just examine what has happened since that time. Oil and gas revenues are down 94%. If there weren't the broad shoulders of the United Kingdom government, if instead this was a genuinely fiscally independent Scotland, there would be a massive black hole in your budget. You would be cutting welfare, you'd be cutting spending, you'd be putting up taxes, you'd be facing a financial catastrophe. two women are killed in England and Wales by a current or former partner. The perpetrator is the problem. The question is not why doesn't she leave, but why doesn't he stop? The Sussex Police and Crime Commissioner is piloting a programme called Drive, which aims to change the behaviour of offenders. In advance of his new strategy to tackle violence against women and girls, Will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating Katie Bourne for tackling domestic violence across Sussex? I think my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this. 
uh, the crime of domestic violence. We have got better at tackling, but there's still so much more to do. I think Katie Bourne, who I know does an excellent job as the Police and Crime Commissioner, I think actually this is a good example of the sort of thing that police and crime commissioners, with their higher profile than police authorities ever had, can give a real lead on. And I would urge others around the country to do exactly that. We also need to make sure we're policing these incidents properly. We also need to change the culture. But I think police and crime commissioners like Katie Bourne can help lead the way. Nigel Dobbs. Speaker, um, as the Prime Minister knows, resources were ring-fenced following the Fresh Start Agreement in November to help Northern Ireland deal with legacy cases. Will the Prime Minister consider releasing some of that money, as has been hinted at by the Secretary of State, to help the police service in Northern Ireland as they face increasing pressures in frontline policing? And will he take the opportunity to reaffirm that there will be no rewriting of the past in Northern Ireland to legitimise terrorism? or to promote a pernicious narrative that is about making equivalent the security forces and terrorists? Well, what I'd say to the right honourable gentleman is that the Fresh Start Agreement was uh, a good agreement and an important part of it was dealing with these legacy cases and making sure they were dealt with more quickly. To me, it's always been about trying to heal the hurt of the legacy cases rather than trying to write new narratives. I'll look carefully at what he says uh, about resources because we need to make sure that the policing of Northern Ireland continues to be properly resourced, not least because we still face a terrorist threat today. Finally, Owen Paterson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The, the United Kingdom endorses the Code of Good Practice on Referendums published by the European Commission for Democracy Through Law. It says equality of opportunity must be guaranteed for the supporters and opponents of the proposal being voted on, and equality must be ensured in terms of public subsidies and other forms of backing. Yesterday, Sir Jeremy Haywood sent a letter round to departments preventing ministers from having access to civil service briefing. Had the Prime Minister checked whether that letter was compatible with the guidelines on neutrality? I am very happy with the letter that was sent out for this reason, which is the Government has a position on this issue. The Government's position is that we would be better off in a reformed European Union. Ministers are able to depart from that position and campaign in a personal capacity. That is, I think, a very important statement. Uh, It is right in terms of how we go about it, but it does not mean the Government is neutral. It does not mean the civil service is neutral. The Government has a policy from which people can depart. As for the funding of the referendum campaign, we now have very clear laws in place and rules in place and the Electoral Commission to make sure that both campaigns are funded properly. And I think that is good for our democracy. Order!